Every marginalized group has certain stereotypes attached to them, be it Jews or queer people. And you know, many of them can be harmful or unproductive, but also many of them exist for a reason. One that I'm guilty of is being thrifty. Some might call it cheap, but I think thrifty is a bit nicer. And I'm telling you this because when I was in Tel Aviv last month, I had to get to Tel Aviv University, which is outside the city, and I didn't want to pay for an expensive taxi. So I decided that I would just take the bus. I checked the route, where to get on, where to get off. But what I didn't factor in was that everything would be in Hebrew, every sign, every announcement. And when I got on, I realized that I couldn't buy a bus ticket with a card, just cash, which I didn't have. But somehow the bus driver just said, don't worry about it, hop on. He asked where I was going and he said he'd let me know when to get off. It was a mitzvah, a small act of kindness. Now from there, I found my way to the campus through security and wandered around till I found the Interdisciplinary Research Building where I met and talked to Uzi Evan. Uzi is 78, he's older than Israel itself, and he was the first openly gay person to serve in the Israeli parliament. He helped to transform the public image of what it means to be gay. And in his personal life with his adoption and other things, he helped to set legal precedents that affects every single queer person in Israel today. Now, Uzi has some really interesting insights into the successes and failures of the LGBTQ movement in Israel and America, which, while I found fascinating, I don't necessarily agree with everything he says. So all of that is coming up. Now, just as a reminder, this is episode two of our four-part series on queerness and Jewish life. Last week's episode was with Denise Egger, the most famous lesbian rabbi in the world. And next week, we're going to hear from the brand new deputy mayor of Tel Aviv, Hen Ariely. In the Middle East, to have a woman, let alone a lesbian, in that kind of leadership role is really incredible. So stay tuned for that. Now, before we get to Hen, here is my conversation with Uzi Evan. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. To begin with, you will probably be remembered as the first openly gay man to serve in the Knesset, your parliament. Yeah, that is true. But my political activity started before that. Well, I was going to say, I think that the majority of your contributions happened before and after you were in office. Yeah. I managed to change several laws before I was publicly serving as a member of Knesset. And that is something that is very unique to Israel. Hasn't happened anywhere else. And I think that that probably began with in 93, when you were testifying for the army. I was testifying in the Knesset about the state of the, or the legal situation in the military that prohibited gays from serving in the higher ranking parts of the military, and I changed the law. And you were a lieutenant colonel who was dismissed and had your security clearance uh, revoked for being gay. For being gay. That was the law in that country, in in Israel at that time. And it took me 10 years before I had a chance to correct it. And that started more or less, in my point of view, the whole gay revolution in Israel. Really? Yeah, that was the first public statement, yeah. the first change or the first realization that we are part of the 
society in Israel should be considered as such. You testifying publicly at the Knesset was, was that one of the first time they'd heard from a publicly gay person? Yes. And that was why it was, we have such an impact because I was a person that you couldn't marginalize easily. There were other gay figures in the newspapers, but they were mostly people that were difficult to identify with. They couldn't serve as a role model. They couldn't speak coherently. Right. In in America, we used to have this stereotype of gay being weakness. But in here, with mandatory military service, does that kind of counteract that stereotype? No. The the public image of uh, being gay in Israel before that was... How should I put it? Criminal, doing things in the darkness, prostitution, child molester. Those were the images. Did you worry that speaking at the Knesset would bring further harm to you? Yes, I was scared shitless. (laughs) Really? (laughs) So much so that I forgot the prepared speech that I... The pages were lost, and I had to speak from memory. I didn't know how my colleagues would react. I didn't know how the newspapers would react, or the TV coverage, because there were there was no precedent. I didn't know what to expect. I just described what happened to me and claimed that all we want is to serve like others, which was a big surprise for many people. And it is a demand that you find it very difficult to object. That is why it took only four months after that for the military code to change. That's very quick. That's because it's Israel. And that's because the impact of my speech was so loud in the media. And because we didn't want any prerogatives, we didn't want any Iran. We just wanted to be like the others. And that's why it was easy to swallow and easy to change. Did you become a well-known public person after that? Immediately, yes. With all the good things and the bad things, I was constantly harassed by the media. I was threatened many times in letters, in phone calls. I couldn't go out in the street because people would come to speak to me, even if I didn't want to. So I became a public figure overnight, yeah. That's why it took me such a short time to get elected to the Knesset from being just a professor. Do they leave you alone now? I'm slowly being forgotten, yes. I I retired from political life voluntarily after I achieved my goals. And people have short memory. Well, you yourself were born before Israel. What has it been like to watch the country grow up? In my lifetime, the population in Israel grew by a factor of 10, from half a million to 5 million or something like that. And that changes everything. When I was a boy, Israel was more or less empty. And now it's highly congested. We didn't have a car until I was 15 or 16. Are you surprised by the perception of Israel around the world? I I have to... We create a lot of attention much more than is proportional to our size or influence. Sometimes it is a good, sometimes it is against us. 
But everything we do here is like living under a magnifying glass. We are not allowed to do what other countries do without thinking. And we are criticized for even minor infringements. And I find it difficult to live under these conditions. Because when I grew up in Israel, Israel was really threatened. We felt that our existence here is not insured and that we have to fight for that every day. So I was wholeheartedly involved in Israel's defense forces. Oh, so the early feeling of Israel was that this is could be temporary. It was immediately after the Holocaust, so... I agreed to do things that I now sometimes regret, but at that time I believed uh, it was necessary. I mentioned earlier that the majority of the time when we hear about Israel and America, it's only in regards to the conflict with Palestine. Mm. As you've gotten older, has your opinion about that changed at all? I don't see it as a conflict with the Palestinian. It's a conflict between what Israel represents and our neighborhood in the Middle East. We are very different from them, and they are different from us. We don't want to be like them, they don't want to be like us. So it's a conflict between cultures. The Palestinians were just part of that culture. And because of the long interaction with us, they are changing much faster than the neighbors. Palestinians are not accepted easily in the Arab neighboring countries. How are they changing? Becoming more westernized because of the long interaction with us. When you hear Arab Israel Palestinians speaking, you will find that in their language, daily language, they already incorporate many Hebrew words. And they learn from us that society does not have to live according to their laws. And it is a long-term change that in the end will come. And this is something that most people don't pay attention to, to my surprise. They like the same food that we do. They dress the same way we do. They talk in political terms in the same way that we do. That's why they are completely not popular in the Arab countries. They are considered an agent of change. When Saddam Hussein occupied Kuwait and then he was thrown out, the first thing that the Kuwaitis did was to exile all the Palestinians that were in Kuwait back to the West Bank. And we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people immediately were kicked out because they supported Saddam Hussein, because uh, they didn't like the regime in Kuwait. So yeah, they are changing. This is maybe a hope in the future. Not yet, but it is slowly happening. Last year, Israel passed the nation state law that has been controversial. It um, said that only Jews have a right to self-determination in Israel. It made Palestinians um, appear to some as second-class citizens. Did you support that law? No, I think it's it doesn't serve any good purpose. It can only cause damage. We will be a Jewish state if we are a majority. As long as we are a majority, this will be a Jewish state. If for some reason we become a minority, then this law will disappear completely. So what's the point? Yeah, it just alienated many people, including me. I find more common grounds with Arab Palestinians who live in Israel 
than I find with the Hasidic Jews. Secular Arabs and secular Israelis have much in common, while the religious fanatics on both sides do not. Many of the rights for gay and lesbian people in your country have been won through the Supreme Court and not through laws and legislation that have been passed. Is that because of these ultra-religious people? Yes. The population of Israel contains about 20% of religious Jews, about 20% of religious Muslims. It's already 40%. (laughs) And they are very, very slowly changing, much more slowly than I would like. But uh, I did change some laws. And some laws were passed in the Knesset, like non-discrimination law in the workplace, like uh, equal rights to spouse. But you're right, most of the steps were legitimized by the Supreme Court and by the military and not by the political system. All of the openly gay people serving have been gay men, not women. I believe there's one, but she came out after she served. Is there is there like a bias in the country against it or is it just sexism in general? No, I don't think there is a bias against lesbians more than is in general population. Women always claim that they are discriminated against them. Perhaps they were for a long time. Now there is no barrier and I don't see why. When I talk to my girl, to my lesbian friends, they claim that the economic situation, because they are less, does not allow them to participate in politics. So maybe we have to wait for economic equality before we can see political representation. In terms of gay acceptance in Israel, is it at the point of acceptance yet, or is it just like a tolerance? It depends on where you are in Israel. Uh, I feel quite different in Jerusalem than I feel in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, you can do whatever you want. Nobody even will even look at you if you kiss somebody in the street. In Jerusalem, that is not the case because of the difference in the composition of the population. So where is the rest of the country? When we run a survey, for instance, gay marriage, we'll find a 60% support, which is a lot. Does a Jewish mother enjoy having a a gay child? No, she doesn't. But uh, more and more stories I hear about acceptance, in the family, as part of the family, and less and less uh, stories about people being evicted or... Or fired from the military like you. <laughs> that is the thing of the past. Now the chief prosecutor of the army is openly gay. Were you openly gay while you were serving? No way. So how did they find out? They found out after I left and came to work here at the university. Why did they find out? Because they had to renew my security clearance. At that time, I was living with a partner. So it doesn't take much to find out. Yes, there is one bedroom. Yes, they lived together for so long. When you said that it was less safe in Jerusalem, or less accepted in Jerusalem, is it unsafe to be gay there? No, I don't think so. But the Arabs in Jerusalem obviously are afraid for their life if they are gay. And the Jews limit themselves to a behavior that will not attract attention. 
So when you were married, you would feel comfortable holding hands or kissing your partner in public? No, yeah. Wow. Yeah, no. In Los Angeles. Um, I don't know. I, it's always a question in the back of my mind. There are other parts of Los Angeles, like my neighborhood, I'd be totally fine. But in other areas, I would well, question it. Uh, Hollywood Hills. West Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> Even you know. <laughs> Look, Friday, this Friday will be the Pride. It's like a festival, nobody cares. Will you go to the Pride? It depends on the weather. <laughs> I established it. I went to the first one, organized the first one. That was 93, yeah. What what was the first Pride like? We assembled in a small uh, park where the municipality allocated a small section of the path to us. And there were some speeches, not many, including me. And there was a big closet that people could come out of it publicly. (laughs) (laughs) And some people did. There were not many people who came out at that time, so there were not many participants. But it changed so quickly. There are not many cities in the world where you have such a point. It's different. It's different because it's free. People are not afraid. Where is the acceptance for trans people in relation to gay and lesbian people? They are still complaining that they are not accepted and that they are marginalized, that they are pushed into prostitution. Being a trans is very difficult, biologically, physically. You have to take medicine all the time. You have to go through a whole medical procedure. So they complain that they are discriminated against. Some say that they are even fired once they are changing the sex. That's not uncommon in America either. It's not. So there's no law that will prohibit firing in the working place, but uh, the Knesset is not working. So yeah, they need extra protection yet, especially the young ones. Speaking of laws, when you were divorced and that was legally recognized by the state, can you talk about why that was so significant? (laughs) Because marriage laws in Israel are completely dominated by the religious people. You cannot marry or divorce unless you go through a religious court. So... When I wanted to get divorced, I had to submit my request to the rabbinical court. (laughs) And they were so shocked because they didn't know what to do. To accept my request for divorce, that means they recognize my marriage. Or reject it and then I can sue them. And that was the first time they'd had to dealt with that issue. Yeah. So they didn't know what to do and they hesitated for a few days. Enough time for me to say that they discriminated against me and required that a non-rabbinical court will deal with it. We have court, family court. And my request was authorized and I got divorced. And the Ministry of Interior had to write that I'm now divorced. And I had to do that because I wanted to remarry. I couldn't remarry before I got divorced. And did you? Yes. <laughs> few years after marriage was recognized, I was the first one to break it. So. And that matters. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, also in the adoption case, we adopted a child, a boy, and uh, it was the first time that it was recognized by the courts. 
gay couple can recognize, can be adoptive parents. And now I'm legally his father. So that was also a big step forward. So in, in the military, the adoption, marriage, divorce, I all had contributed something. That's nice. What is the next hurdle for LGBTQ people in this country? We are now fighting about adoption and uh, what do you call it? Surrogacy? Surrogacy. So it's all family-based. Yes, I set the tone for that many years ago. I decided that there were two options for us, either to segregate like it is in the U.S. or to try to assimilate. I claim that we will have much better results, much faster, if we emphasize the common grounds and not the differences. And so that was being debated about which avenue to go down. At that time, yes. Because to go down this path of, as you said, assimilation, it's telling the other side that you have values and we agree with them, as opposed to your way of life is not right. Yeah, I had to fight bitterly because there were people who who were using this argument. And I'm glad that uh, my way was adopted because it gave us all these benefits in a very short time. And and that's so interesting. So from your perspective in the U.S., we were not trying to assimilate at all. You created ghettos. You created a culture which is opposing the mainstream culture. You refuse to participate in the political campaign of the establishment. And often we're very proud of that, too. Well, it's counterproductive. It creates conflicts and friction. It's so interesting hearing you talk about fighting for family values in Israel, because I'm not saying one is better or worse, but like we are still fighting for the right to not be denied housing or health care or not to be fired for our jobs. We're fighting so that trans people are not murdered and we don't care. It's we're, we're at a, more of like a base level of needs. I believe because you, you or your leadership chose a way that emphasizes the difference instead of emphasizing the common grounds. How can you oppose somebody who says, yeah, let me have a child. I want to be like you. How can you say no? And so maybe that's why marriage equality passed so quickly, because that was us telling them, let's be like you. Yeah. Can I ask what your opinion is of my president, Donald Trump? I wish that you would select your president more carefully. (laughs) I don't believe he's doing a good job. Netanyahu says that he is the greatest friend in the White House that Israel has ever seen. Absolutely. It's so interesting being here because people always bring up how good Donald Trump is to Israel. And they forget that he's not so good for other things. I have a longer view. He will be gone and then what? So on the whole, is he fairly popular here? Yes. We have no reason to fight with him. He's more or less supporting every move that we speak about. And you're right, in the short term, that's good for you. <laughs> in the short term, very good. What will happen when he's gone? We've seen in America and abroad a rising anti-Semitism. Yeah. I, I'm assuming that in a country full of Jewish people, you're not seeing that 
as on a day-to-day basis, though, for you? It's, are you? it's widely reported, yes. More of like reports. We more or less feel responsible for the safety of Jewish people everywhere, which is stupid, but it is true. Because we have now the power to stop what Hitler did. We can say, no, you cannot do that anymore. And so the way that you said that Israel has disproportionate power to its size, that is a positive way of that, that you can try to change that? Positive or negative, depending on how you use this power. (laughs) In America, being Jewish, part of that feeling, it feels like an outsider because there are so such a small percentage of Jews. Because you go up in uh, well, North me, Carolina. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the South. But I, I feel like you probably don't have that feeling of being an outsider growing up yeah. amongst Jews. No, this but, is my country. <laughs> but I think of being an outsider as a very common feeling of being gay. Do I feel outsider? No. You don't? No, we are part of the society. That is fascinating. This is what I was aiming at, what I was talking about. We want to be part of what is going on here. We don't want to be different. Where do you think that comes from? Jewish family. You cannot run away from your family here. There is nowhere to go. Oh, and you're all starting with the same set of values of coming from Judaism at the base level here. The structure of society here is very different from the one in the U.S. It's based on the family. Always is. No matter if you grow up in Beersheba and you move to Tel Aviv, it's only an hour drive. So you cannot not consider your family when you consider it, even if you are gay. And uh, since this is such a small, closely knit society, everybody in every family knows somebody who is gay. So you cannot develop this stereotype, hateful image of gays. It's, it doesn't work. Even in the religious circles now, I hear more and more cases of acceptance after some period of adjustment. Gay, religious, young guys are accepted in their families. And if they choose to be rabbis, that is open to them. I know several, yeah. How did your family take it when you came out? Horribly. Psychiatric treatment. Like conversion therapy? Well, they didn't have that name then, but yeah. They were sure that once I get treated, I will be normal again. In fact, I was treated for depression at that time. And the doctor told me, you are not depressed anymore, the treatment is over, and you will be gay the rest of your life. So I went to my mother, who financed the doctor, and told her that the treatment is finished and what he said. And you know what her reaction was? I told you he was a bad doctor. You need another That's very lucky that that's the doctor you went to. In those days, yes. He was an exception. Is AIDS a part of the conversation at all amongst like the gay men? AIDS was not uh, always on the same level as it was in the U.S., it was about 10 times smaller in number of patients. And I don't know why, because the people were hedonistic here as much as in the U.S. But for some reason, it was never on the same scale. I have several friends who died from AIDS, but it was not on an epidemic like it was in the U.S. In America, 
being LGBTQ is defined by things like the AIDS crisis, like recently the Pulse nightclub shooting, um, but also positive things like marriage equality. And I just wonder what are like the big defining factors of gay life in Israel? Well, we had one sh gay club shooting. You are familiar with them? I'm not. 10 years ago <clears throat> in Tel Aviv, in the youth center, gay youth center, somebody entered and sprayed with a machine gun. One guy was killed, several were wounded, and it was never, it was never found out. But the public reaction to that incident was so severe that it has not happened again. And gay bashing is almost unheard of. Anything positive? Yes, uh, the winning in the Eurovision <laughs> of Dana International. <laughs> She was the first trans singer that was sent to the Eurovision oh. And she won. And she won. That's very nice. So she, being gay was not something negative. It was something positive too. Everybody should participate. So that, that may be considered a wow. singular event. My contribution was already forgotten by the time. <laughs> I think based on, as you say, your contributions, the assumption would be that you are now, since you're a professor, teaching politics. And yet, that's quite the opposite. Can you explain what you teach in research? Behavior of atoms and molecules, quantum, what is known as quantum mechanics, which is very counterintuitive, very difficult to explain. But I'm doing experiment to examine the behavior of atoms and molecules under extreme conditions, like in outer space. Uh, basic science. Doesn't have any uses. Do you plan on working forever? No. I already see the signs of advancing age. My hands are shaking slightly. My eyesight is not what it used to be. You can slow it, you cannot stop it. Well, thank you for talking to me. That is it for today. Until next week, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to stay connected and recommend guests. We are brought to you by Luminary Media and Hum Media and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come find us at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Tanner Robbins, Betty Marquez-Rosales, Natalie Bader, Karin Navadia, and myself with sound engineering by Scott Somerville and Mark Bush. We'll see you next week.